Well, we're going to pick up the reading again in 2 Chronicles chapter 1. For those of you tuning in online, we want to welcome you. Thank you for joining us, Olmstead Falls Campus, Lorraine Correctional Institution. We love you guys. We're pulling for you. Thank you for joining us today. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. As the text simply reads here in verse 1, After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Munites, came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazan, Tamar, that is, in Gedi. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you, O oh, our God. Did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine... We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name, and we will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear, and you will save us. But now, here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt, and so they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's attacking us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Anybody ever been there this morning? This morning, I've simply titled this message, I prayed, God, now what? I prayed, what do I do now? Pastor Andrew Wilson writes in an article on Christianity Today about an incident that he had on a midair flight. And he says this, he says, A few years ago, my wife and I were on an Air New Zealand flight that felt literally like it was falling from the sky. And as we were approaching the Queenstown airport, we were caught in a giant wind tunnel. The plane suddenly began to shudder and sputter sporadically as it dropped 50 feet at a time. As the cabin filled with people screaming and praying with shrieks of cries, many crying out to a God whom they didn't even believe in. The content of those prayers fascinated me, he says. I suspect it reflects the many ways that we intuitively pray. The most common petition I heard was in some variant of deliver us from evil or help. <laughs> save us, or, oh God, please don't let me die. The other prayers I heard were though more infrequently were prayers such as forgive us of our sins, or I'm sorry, or God, please forgive me. 
It seemed that people wanted to be at peace with God before they died, and so after crying out to God, they apologized as they prepared to meet their maker. Uh, well, 30 minutes after the flight, the same passengers were all gathered at the baggage claim, and they were all looking awkwardly at each other. No doubt, many of them felt a little bit foolish. Now, what this story highlights is the fact that prayer happens to be a native urge within us all. Whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, or an Anglican priest, prayer happens to be profitable and the most powerful thing we can do. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, as we commemorate him tomorrow and celebrate his legacy, he was a champion for justice and civil rights, a powerful sojourner for truth. And some forget the fact that Dr. King was also a pastor and a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in one of his sermons titled, The Misuse of Prayer, Dr. King says this. He says, prayer is indigenous to the human spirit. It represents the throbbing desires of the human heart. There's something deep within us that makes us know that God works in the paradox of unpredictable newness and trustworthy faithfulness. And so even the most devout atheists will at times cry out for the God that his own theory denies. That said, there's something profitable and powerful about prayer. Well, you know that we've been studying prayer over the last few weeks, and uh, we've been focusing on prayer because our church is in the middle of a 40-day prayer campaign. This campaign is in cooperation and conjunction with uh, the Alliance Church as a whole, and we all decided we're going to get together and focus on the Lord's Prayer, and in particular, the prayer he taught his disciples in Matthew 6. And the purpose of us studying this prayer is to dial deeper into God's presence. You see, some view the Lord's Prayer as just simply a repetitious monologue or something that we say from rote memory. Uh, we sort of mindlessly mimic the words of the Lord's Prayer as somewhat of a magic formula. Uh, but it's been said that the Lord's Prayer is not a formula just simply to get what we want. Instead, it's a framework for deepening our relationship with God. And so we began a couple of weeks ago with prayer as worship. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And certainly God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our affections this morning. And prayer is one of the ways that we worship him as we orient our affections towards our dad, Abba, Papa. Last week we learned that prayer is actually a partnership with God and his kingdom. Uh, therefore, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now we come to week three, which is prayer as petition. Give us today our daily bread. In other words, give us, Lord God, your sustenance. Give us the life that we need to live. Give us your provision, your strength. Give us a sense of your presence Lord, give us whatever it is that we need that's in alignment with your kingdom purpose and plan and that ultimately glorifies your name best. Lord, give us today our lack as we turn our attention to you and then we focus our, pension, uh, our petitions on your love. The word petition means to make or present a formal request to an authority with respect to a particular cause. And we see examples of petitions from people, men and women of God, all throughout Scripture. 
Most notably, we see it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, which says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercessions, again, with thanksgiving, be made for all people. And so you see there's a correlation and a connection between our prayers and petitions and our praise of Almighty God. You see clearer examples of this in the Old Testament. For instance, the prophet Daniel, who was issued an edict and a decree from the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, who made an issue, a, a decree that said that he doesn't permit any worship of any other gods except to King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Daniel heard about this decree and Daniel said, you can't stop me from praying to my God. And so Daniel runs home, goes into his prayer closet, gets on his knees, and not only begins to pray to his God, but he begins to praise his God at the same time in total opposition and defiance to this decree. And some of the king's administration happened to stumble upon Daniel as he's in this praise mode in this prayer uh, conference with the Lord. And they say, they say this, these men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petitions. They found him making pleas. We have Hannah in the Old Testament, faithful woman of God. Here's a woman who was broken in spirit. She was contrite in heart. She was dealing with a great anguish, and she was dealing with a lot of pain due to being barren and childless all of her life. But she found her strength in the Lord as she turned her pain into a petition, and from those petitions, she began to praise God's name. And as a result of her prayers, and as a result of her petitions and her praising to Almighty God, she received an answer to her prayers. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 27 says, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition. And so we find all throughout the Bible, we see various examples of people in desperate need who would take those desperate needs and turn them into desperate pleas to God for help. And we know that God doesn't just simply listen to our prayers and hear our prayers. We serve a God who is able to deliver and set free. He's able to answer. And he works on behalf of those who wait for him. But I want to throw a twist in the plot this morning and raise the question to you this morning. What do you do in the meantime and in between times of prayer? In other words, what do you do when you've prayed all you can pray and it seems like that's just not enough? I mean, you've been praying and praying and praying, but you're still not seeing anything happen and you're suspended between your burden and a breakthrough. What do you do during times like that? Some of you have been praying for years for maybe a troubled teenager to come back to the Lord and it seems that the more you pray, the more trouble they get into. What do you do during times like that? Some of you have been praying for a spouse or, or you've been praying for forgiveness at home or reconciliation to be brought. And last week, you just received a notice of divorce in spite of the fact that you've been praying. What do you do during a downtime as you feel embattled by life? Some of you say you've been petitioning God for help. You've requested his provision. You've pleaded with God to get in and act, but the problem keeps pressing you and even paralyzing you now with panic. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, this is where we find help from this passage. 
2 Chronicles chapter 20. Because in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we find a man who was under great stress. His name is King Jehoshaphat. And he had just received some startling news. And that news was that his nation was under attack. With no prior warning, with nothing to provoke anything or anyone, all of a sudden, Jehoshaphat gets news that this vast army is coming from out of nowhere. And so naturally, Jehoshaphat was alarmed, right? But being the godly man that Jehoshaphat was and the godly king that he was, Jehoshaphat decides to respond in three ways. He didn't panic for too long. He didn't run away in fear. The first thing that Jehoshaphat did, according to this text, is he sought the Lord. The second thing that Jehoshaphat did was he uh, instituted a nationwide fast, and then this great king decided, I'm not just going to stop, and I'm not just going to stop at fasting. I'm going to pray. And what Jehoshaphat did was he prayed one of the most humble prayers in all of the Old Testament. Because in this prayer, sort of serves as a model of the Lord's Prayer. With all of these petitions, he starts petitioning God as he appeals to God for his sovereignty in verses 5 and 6. He appeals to God's previous deeds and the way that he acted and delivered before in the past in verse 7. He appeals to God's power to protect in verse 8 and 9. And then he summed it all up by honoring God and recognizing God as his only hope of survival in verses 10 through 12. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 13 because the text says that while they were seeking God's face and, and just kind of waiting on this vast army to continue to come their way, they didn't have a clue about what to do. And you just think about that. And I just want to park right there for a minute and ask, have you ever been paralyzed by a sudden storm that left you motionless? I mean, you didn't see that job loss coming, but it came. You didn't see all these marital problems happening in your life. You've only been married two years. You didn't expect to be going to divorce court so soon, but it happened. You didn't expect that cancer diagnosis to come from out of nowhere, and now your equilibrium is all shook up, and you don't quite know what to do. Well, I want to suggest this morning that every now and then, our faith journey leads us to places of uncertainty. And when you're not exactly certain of what's going on or certain of what to do, these are times where God would call for us to just stand. Stand and wait for direction from the Lord. And so what I want to do this morning in the next few minutes is I want to suggest three ways that God would call for us to stand after the amen of our petitions. Is that all right? Y'all quiet audience this morning. <laughs> First thing we notice Verse 13, we just simply need to stand still and wait. Notice what the text says. All the men of Judah with their wives, their children, and their little ones just stood there. You see, in order for us to see great and mighty things happen and miracles happen in our lives, we have to learn the discipline of standing still when times get tough. Don't panic don't retreat in fear. Just stand and hold on to God's unchanging hand. You see, undoubtedly, Judah knew from previous experience with the Lord that they probably shouldn't be too hasty in handling this conflict because they had a good track record with God. 
And it's no doubt in their minds they began to reflect upon a time when God parted the Red Seas and allowed them to march through on dry ground as they were escaping their bondage from Egypt. And no doubt they probably remembered a God who would rain down manna in the wilderness and provide for them the bread from heaven. No doubt they probably reflected upon that. And it's no question they probably remember the time when, they, when God caused the walls of Jericho to come crumbling down from their thunderous praise. And so I would even say by this time, they probably even came up with their own motto. <laughs> and that motto could have read something like this, that one who's experienced the divine deliverance of God need not crack under a crisis. And so they found themselves standing there, waiting in reverence, for direction. You know, it's been said that when God wants to do something delightful, it often springs from something this difficult. And when God wants to do something incredible, it often starts with an impossibility. And Judah, as well as Jehoshaphat, understood this well. Therefore, they found themselves, rather than running in panic and trying to get involved and manipulate stuff, they just found themselves completely surrendered to Almighty God, waiting reverently for direction. And oh, how we need to learn this lesson today. I myself, I'm included. Because too many of us make hasty decisions out of fear, and when we make hasty decisions out of fear, we end up forfeiting opportunities for God to act and therefore be glorified in our circumstance. But instead, we need to stand still and just wait. Israel just kind of waited on the Lord. Now, the question could be raised, what does it mean to stand still and wait? I suppose we just sit here and twiddle our thumbs and do nothing? Uh, years ago, we used to live in Chicago, my wife and I, my whole family. And if any of you have ever been to Chicago, you know that Chicago has the Magnificent Mile. Anybody ever been down there? Magnificent Mile in Chicago. I love Chicago. Because on the Magnificent Mile, you see all these various acts of entertainment. You'll see people break dancing and all that, something like that, you know. <laughs> you know <laughs> you'll see talented singers. But my favorite guy on the Magnificent Mile is the Silver Dude. You know, there's a silver guy, he paints himself from head to toe silver, and he'll just stand there in this pose, and he never moves. Little kids running up, waving on, ah, he just don't even move. Every, every now and then he'll make a sudden gesture and people will jump back, but he never makes a move. And a lot of us think this is what it means to stand still and wait. <laughs> we don't do nothing. But what God expects us to do, it's not that we don't do anything at all. In the waiting process, God expects you to come to church and praise his name. God expects you to continue to serve him. God expects you to live surrendered. Standing still has to do with our perspective. And the first perspective that we have is the correct perspective of ourselves. We need to come to the realization within ourselves that we don't always have what it takes. Amen, somebody. <laughs> We don't always have what it takes. God never designed life to be lived in isolation from his power. And every now and then, he'll put you in a circumstance to remind you of that. And so we recognize our perspective is that we need a Savior to come through and rescue us. That's the first thing. We come to the per correct perspective of ourselves. The second thing we do is we have to have a correct perspective of God. Because God and God alone must be sovereign over our salvation. 
This is why Jesus says, apart from me, you can do what? You, you can't do nothing. And so what this means is we don't hope for clever methods to save us. No, we don't always look immediately to the doctor. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Every now and then, God may use a doctor or use a friend or use a circumstance to get you the help that you need. But ultimately, you need to recognize that every resource has an ultimate source in Almighty God. <laughs> and so we turn our attention to him, realizing that God and God alone is the focal point of our deliverance. Now, this is where you'll begin to notice a shift happening in your souls. Because when you begin to embrace this type of faith and you start to see your limitations in the face of the greatness of our God, all of a sudden that problem that once occupies your energy and that problem that caused you panic, all of a sudden it begins to look this small behind the shadow of God's greatness. Years ago, I was watching this documentary about Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong, first astronaut to make it to the moon, and in this documentary, he goes on and on to talk about his experience. And Neil says that when he got off of the spaceship or whatever it's called, he says he's walking around the moon and he starts to scan the horizon of space. And he says he's noticing all of these different stars and all of these different galaxies. And then he said there was one little planet that just kept sticking out. He said it was a tiny little pea-sized planet and it was blue. And he said it finally dawned on him that that tiny little pea-sized planet was Earth. <laughs> and so Neil Armstrong tried an experiment. With one eye closed, he stuck his thumb out. And he said he was able to hide planet Earth behind his thumb. And he says it suddenly dawned on him that everything that he once knew, all of the people in his life, all of the places that he once visited, he says, in fact, the problems of earth itself, he was able to hide behind his thumb. Now, what Neil Armstrong is describing is none less than the sovereign hand of God on our lives. Because we serve a God who was able to hide all of your problems, all of your fears, all of your concerns, all of your sins behind the thumb of his sovereignty and protective care. That's the type of God we serve. And so we stand still and we wait on a God like this. But not only do we stand still and we wait, we have to stand firm with courage. Notice verse 14. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benai, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah. That's pretty good, ain't it? <laughs> I practiced on this last night. A Levite and a descendant of Asaph as he stood in the assembly. Get this, verse 15, he says, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. It, it belongs to the Lord. It's not your battle or concern. It belongs to God. Somebody say it with me. Y'all too quiet this morning. Say the battle belongs to God. It's his battle, not ours, so why not let him fight it for us? Amen? Years ago, I got this letter in the mail. I'll never forget it. And it came in a big, bright red envelope. 
On the front of the envelope, it was marked urgent. And my heart skipped a beat. Because I didn't know where this was. I didn't know whether it was a bill collector. <laughs> I didn't know if this was coming from the courts or worse yet, it's the IRS. Oh, Lord, they done finally found me out. <laughs> Can't win with them. So my heart skipped a beat, but it calmed down real quick when I glanced a little further and saw it had somebody else's name on it. <laughs> so it was delivered to the wrong address. And so I wrote return to sender on that bad boy and put it back in the mail. Now you laugh, but sometimes the enemy will try to deliver to you a package of problems. Sometimes life will try to put you in a pickle and say, this is yours. If I understand this passage right, what God is telling us is that what we need to do is write return the sender on that bad boy because it's got God's name on it, not yours. What a powerful revelation this is. Because the prophet is pretty much saying, we don't have to be scurred. <laughs> we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be discouraged. Then he gives us the marvelous explanation why. It's because the battle is not yours, it's God's. It's God's. Do you receive that this morning? Yes. What a relief this is. Because until we learn how to hand our battles over to the Lord, we'll never understand true peace as a byproduct of trusting his holy name. Psalm 55 says it best. Cast your cares unto the Lord and he will sustain you. He will sustain you. And I believe that God may be speaking to somebody from the pages of this text this morning. And only you know what you came in here battling. And he wants you to know that that battle that wages war on your soul right now is not your battle to fight. That sin problem that you've been dealing with is not yours. Hand it over to the Lord and accept his grace and forgiveness. That illness that you've been diagnosed with, that legal fight, that financial burden is not your financial burden. It belongs to the Lord. And so trade in your panic in exchange for his peace. That's what this passage is telling us. And I don't know about you, but I could shout for joy. Because too often, we take on burdens that God never intended for us to have. But until you learn to transfer ownership of that problem to the Lord, you'll always be discouraged. I love this passage so much because it gives us a plan, not just simply to pray, but it gives us a plan to praise his holy name. Notice verse 16. It gets interesting here. Verse 16, the prophet continues to speak. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jerul. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Key verse right here. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. He'll be with you. He promises his presence. He says, the Lord will be with you. And after pleading with this nation to give God the battle, God says, pretty much, I want you to stand and don't fight. Now, they had to be thinking this is a reversal of the trend, because ever since this nation existed, they had to fight for their existence. Every time they turned around, they was fighting for their own lives. They were fighting their neighbors. They were fighting up against their own countrymen. But God was telling this nation, this time, I don't want you to fight at all. I want you to just stand still and watch my glory work. 
And most of us, this is sort of antithetical to the way we live our lives as well. Because all of our lives, we've been doing all the fighting. We've been fighting for peace of mind. We've been fighting for control in our families and in our homes. We've been fighting over greed. We've been fighting for our pride and some sort of self-preservation. We've been fighting sin using self-will determinism instead of using the Holy Spirit's power. But when it comes to trials and tribulations and fights, God is saying, don't fight that fight with your hands. My plan is for you to just simply stand, and we stand firm with courage watching God fight our battles for us. You know, after we learn to stand still and we wait, and after we learn to stand firm with courage, there's really nothing left for us to do but to stand up and praise his holy name in anticipation for what he's getting ready to do. Don't just take my word for it. Take the word of the Lord. Because in verse 18, that's exactly what Jehoshaphat does. The text says, get this, (laughs) Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Now, keep in mind, they weren't even delivered yet, but they worship in the Lord. And then verse 19, then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up, and they praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. I like some translations because some translations say that they praise God at the tops of their lungs. This means that they wasn't just waiting for the worship team, all right? They wasn't just wallflower worshipers. They wasn't just stoic spectators. They were participants in this praise fest. I wish somebody could help me understand. After, oh, I wish you could help me understand. After having borne witness to the goodness of God, the grace of Almighty God, after being forgiven for so many sins, how can we come into worship service being so quiet and cavalier when we serve a God who is so awesome? (laughs) Psalm 81.1 commands us, Shout aloud to the God of Jacob, the Bible says. Hebrews 13, let us continually offer to God the sacrifice of praise. Can somebody just say he is worthy? He is worthy. Yes, he is. It's a shame that we don't see more of this in our worship services today. You might as well let go because this is the house of the Lord. Don't save all your praise for the Browns. They ain't going nowhere anyway. They ain't going to never make the playoffs. Don't save all your praise for the Cavs. No, when we serve a God who was battered, who was bruised, who was broken for yours and my transgressions, and the most we can do is come into worship and give him a passing nod, no, he is worthy of all of our praise. Yes, he is, and that's why we adore him. Yes. The other day, I happened to be reading in the book of Revelation, And do you know that there are over seven examples of these loud, celebrative praises, corporate praise, in the book of Revelation to our mighty God? The first thing I thought after reading that is that some of us are going to be in for some culture shock when we get to heaven, all right? (laughs) Because we're too quiet. We're too laid back. But the next thing I thought is that there's got to be something significant to this, the fact that God honors our praise and our corporate praise together. And then it dawned on me, it's only fitting. Because how can we praise casually a Savior who died so radically for us? 
How can we pray so casually? A Savior who died for our sins, who was resurrected from the grave, who sits right now at the right hand of God the Father offering us the help that we need. How can we praise him casually? No. And so I got to thinking, if when we get to heaven, it's going to be a concert of praise like never before, then we might as well start practicing now. Amen. And so I, I'm going to do a little bit something different this morning. On the, word, on the screen, I have the words from Revelation chapter 5. And in this revelation, it depicts the angels of God and joyful praise and worship to your Savior and my God. What I want us to do is I want us to stand in honor of the Lord. Those of you who could physically stand. This is different, I know. But I want you to put in mind whatever problem stresses you out this morning. I want you to have in mind whatever causes your heart to panic, whatever dilemma you find yourself in, and whatever you need rescuing from in your life. I want you to put that in your mind this morning, and then I want you to use this prayer and this praise as an anthem of praise to give your heart peace. We're going to say this prayer and this praise together. Amen? Verse 12 in chapter 5 of Revelation says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength, honor and glory and praise. Now give him a shout of praise, will you? Yes. He is so worthy of it. Because if we don't praise, the rocks will cry out. He is so worthy of our praise. Nobody like our God. Amen? You could be seated. I know y'all want to keep standing and praising him, though, don't you? That felt kind of good. Yeah, and why not? Because we're praising him by faith and not by sight. We're praising him by faith and not by sight. And that's exactly what Jehoshaphat did. Because if you follow the narrative of this story, guess what? Jehoshaphat continued to praise God. God would set ambushes against their attackers. And he caused this army to turn against one another, and so they defeated themselves. And then in verse 27, it says this, The Lord had given Judah cause to rejoice. I don't think you get it. <laughs> he gave Judah a reason to praise. God gave Judah cause to rejoice. Maybe I could illustrate it like this. I know the praise team is behind me. Y'all like, hey, I'm ready to sing. But I want to illustrate it like this. When I was growing up, uh, I used to get in trouble a lot. And when I would get in trouble, and I'm probably in trouble now because I'm taking too long. <laughs> but anytime I get in trouble, I end up crying. And my mom, oh, she had this clever phrase that she would say all the time like black mothers could say this good. she say, keep, keep crying and I'm going to give you something to cry about. Right? So, only my mom could say something like that. It took years for me to understand what that meant. She said, keep crying and I'm going to give you something to cry about. Well, what the Lord is telling us this morning, ladies and gentlemen, is he's saying, I want you to keep praising me and I'm going to give you something to praise about. <laughs> yes. I want you to keep worshiping me and I'll show you how good I am. I want you to keep celebrating me and keep serving me and I will show you that I'm trustworthy, I am faithful, and I am a good God. Ladies and gentlemen, praise puts us in position to encounter the manifest presence of God. Amen. Amen. All right, worship team. <laughs> it's all yours, dog. <laughs>